Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. I'm Brett Winton. I direct research for ARK Invest. And here we have our fearless leader, our CEO and CIO, Kathy Wood. Hi, Kathy. How are you? Hey, Brett. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So what should we talk about today in today's podcast? Well, I think we should talk about big ideas. I mean, really big ideas. What do you think? Sounds good. Every, every year we put out a big ideas presentation. It's uh, kind of a compendium of some of the research insights we've both had over the course of the year and what we think is going to be important this year. And so we just put it out. It's called Big Ideas 2021. Kathy, why don't you set it up a little bit? What should we think about here? We are, are getting all kinds of questions about how sustainable what we're experiencing in the equity markets in the global economy, how, how sustainable are these new mega trends that seem to be evolving? And I think what's great about big ideas is even we, who we spend all of our time in uh, the research and investing around these ideas, and even we, at the end of the year, as we're summarizing how big these ideas are, we are sometimes stunned when we pull away and how quickly this is happening, so quickly. And uh, the other question we face here is, is this a bubble? Now, uh, there's a lot of muscle memory around the tech and telecom bubble and bust. And uh, obviously, that was not a good experience for a lot of people. It was their first experience with this notion that the internet, in that case, was going to set off years and years of exponential growth opportunities. And that did happen. It actually happened. But uh, it did take, for some of the technologies, it took 15 to 25 years for the seeds that were planted during the tech and telecom bubble to bear fruit. Now we're ready for prime time. They're bearing fruit. Now that we're here, investors are skeptical. They're afraid that uh, there are going to be disappointments like we experienced back then. Well, back then what happened is too much capital chased too few opportunities too soon. The costs were way too high and the technologies were not ready. In fact, some of them didn't even exist. And so, of course, that did end badly. Now the costs and the technology are at the right point so that we are experiencing exponential growth trends in five technology platforms involving 14 different technologies, individual technologies. And what we're seeing 
which this is what is astonishing to us, I think, as we talk about this. We're seeing more and more convergence uh, between and among the technologies. And so we're seeing one S-curve feeding into and accelerating another S-curve upon another S-curve. And I think that's why this is happening so quickly. So maybe I can uh, lob it to you, uh, Brett, to riff a bit on that. And, and maybe we can start with deep learning, which I think has been the big surprise. Sure. And, and I think deep learning is actually a nice almost continuation of the internet. But even reflecting back on, on .com, at least in our view, there really was a single technology platform that a lot of hopes were being put on top of. And, and one of the, I, I think you're absolutely right that convergence, like the, the capabilities of an individual technology that's itself building atop other technology platforms, they get multiplicative as they converge. And you just didn't have as many opportunities for almost like puzzle piecing together different technologies back then uh, that you seem to now. Like you mentioned deep learning, really that that's an area where the pace of change has surprised us. If you rewound the clock three years and asked whether or not deep learning was applicable to natural language processing, a really smart experts, you know, experts in the field would say, no, language is too, discontinuous and this innovation of kind of using neural networks to solve complex um, problems and pattern recognition tasks is just not going to apply there. Well, it turns out just over the past year, we've gotten a proof point that actually it absolutely will. And you will be able to do it in a way that it seems to like produce almost like high school English level compositions generated from scratch by a computer. And so think about like all of the ways in which the world relies upon language to, to make business processes work and, and what a powerful tool automated generation of language could be. And, and so that's one area where deep learning is clearly having an impact. And then also within the past, I think it's within the past three months, DeepMind, uh, one of Google's subsidiaries or Alphabet subsidiaries, announced AlphaFold, which is the ability to take the um, genetic information in DNA and, and predict what proteins would be generated from that genetic in information, the structure of the protein that would be generated, which would give you an understanding of like what the actual disease or disorder coming off a, a mutated stretch of DNA, how it will manifest in the body. And so give you a much better chance of targeting a drug against that disease. This is something that has been, it's an unsolved problem for the past 50 years of how to do that. And, and, and that DeepMind seems to be able to use the same technology that we're using to solve language generation by computers to also figure out protein folding is indicative of both how dramatically large and interesting the opportunity set applicable to deep learning is, and also within the health space, like you're only able to do that protein folding problem because you have the gene sequencers to sequence the genome to get yourself the information to train the algorithms. And so kind of like gene sequencing and the cost decline there is enabling kind of the deep learning to build on top of it, which will then enable the next, you know, maybe it's gene editing to design the treatment that plugs into that particular protein. So. Yeah, I, I think uh, in mentioning each of those technologies, we can talk about how quickly costs are falling. So in the case of AI training, costs are dropping about 37% per year. When costs drop that quickly, 
really there's a it unleashes a lot of creativity and problem solving uh, that w- couldn't have taken place uh, at any other time. And we're seeing uh, AI models growing tenfold per year. I think it's something like that, Brett. Yeah. Uh, these are astonishing rates of change. And uh, it seems it seems like they are unstoppable, except when you think about that. Wait a minute. Ten times per year, these models are growing. What does that mean? How are we going to get through all of this? But maybe that's a topic for another day. It's just the change is happening very rapidly. Well, it's it's indicative of how much investment needs to go into the hardware to support these AI models, right? Like if, if you if you imagine if you can create an AI model that uh, replaces a lot of the sales function of a salesperson or makes that person's job that much easier, makes them that much more productive, then you would pay a lot of money for that if you're Salesforce or, uh, or, or another software as a service provider because the end business will pay a lot of money for that. And since the investment in the model that enables you to do that is a one-time cost, it's basically you're investing in compute, you're investing in collecting all the data, you are training the model, um, and then you demonstrate kind of the capability and the productivity uplift you get You'd happily, you know, you think think about that as a an asset that you have invested in that actually will yield a very high return. Uh, and so within the deck, you can see our forecast that, you know, we think the cost to train an individual model could grow to a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars. However, <laughs> right, like there's also all of this innovation on the cost decline side. So so it's hard to say exactly what each unit model will look like. But I think it's clear that people are doing a lot more investment in the underlying compute capability to deliver these models and thinking strategically about business model setup to make sure they're scraping in proprietary data to then give them an advantageous position relative to um, kind of the new capabilities being unveiled by deep learning. We think that ARM and RISC-V are going to displace Intel in, in the data center, uh, mostly because uh, they can accomplish what we're talking about so much more easily and less expensively than Intel. So Intel's market share in the data center, which is the most profitable part of their business, I believe, uh, we think will go from 92% share to 27% share by 2030. That's uh, that's kind of a, a wake-up call for those index funds who have Intel as the largest semiconductor position. And there it's like a, can, a few factors that are kind of headwinds. Uh, Apple going direct to its own ARM chips on its laptops will port over the developer base. Um, you can also argue that the within the data center, the CPU, which is where Intel is dominant, uh, that becomes less critical to performance as more applications moving to a deep learning environment where they're using accelerators, either FPGAs or GPUs by the likes of NVIDIA. And so then because you're not performance differentiating on your CPU, you're not willing to pay some extra normal premium to, to kind of buy the best in class CPU. And at the same time, at least in custom chips de- developed by Amazon and, and other cloud providers we anticipate in the future, you can already get better bang for your buck on ARM and likely on RISC-V in the future. And so there's a lot of choppy water in the traditional CPU space to come mm-hmm. in our view. Yeah. And actually just highlighting that one point, uh, 
you know, the, the traditional benchmarks out there, if what we're saying about disruptive innovation is correct, and these S-curves are feeding one another uh, so that these trends are accelerating, it probably means the amount of creative destruction out there is going to be pretty serious. And, and I think it will hit, again, the traditional world order, which today is represented by the broad-based benchmarks. So again, it's really important to be on the right side of change when it comes to innovation. Uh, I'd like to bring us into maybe a little more quickly. Uh, we spent time with deep learning because it is really critical to everything that's happening. But uh, from virtual worlds and digital wallets, Bitcoin, electric vehicles, autonomous automation, uh, drones, orbital aerospace, as you mentioned, the uh, DNA sequencing, uh, AI is going to touch every one of these. But maybe why don't you select the next one we, we talk about, Brett? Well, sure. I think a topic that I return to again and again uh, is, is kind of autonomous taxis. And people are skeptical that we are actually going to be able to deliver an autonomous taxi service, a, a taxi where you don't have a driver in the driver's seat. And the, the pace of change in AI informs our view that that is more likely, you have, at least in, in my, from my perspective, you have to believe it's more likely at the, you know, this point in 2021 than you did 12 months ago, because of so many basically critical thresholds neural nets have crossed in domains that you didn't necessarily expect them to be able to perform at the level that they're able to. And what's interesting about, to me, the autonomous taxi space is if you can deliver autonomous taxis, you should unlock a huge market opportunity measured in the trillions of dollars. You know, in, in the deck, we talk about more than a trillion dollars in operating profits accruing to the platform operators um, by 2030. Uh, and, and so like just within equity markets, if somebody's doing a trillion plus dollars in operating profits, you should be willing to pay, you know, well north of $10 trillion for that collective set of entities. Right. And I'll just uh, uh, maybe provide a little more perspective there. So the ride hailing uh, companies globally today are, are valued in the marketplace at roughly $200 billion dollars. And what, what Brett is saying is this multi-trillion dollar opportunity has just started. And the, the ride-hailing players in the market today are not in the pole position to enjoy this ride, so to speak. Uh, it is the companies that have been collecting data. Data is the new oil. I know that's trite, but it really is in this case because it is the companies with the largest pools of data and the highest quality data with the, the best AI expertise that are gonna win this game. And of course, uh, Tesla is our largest position for a reason. We've studied how much it has done to make autonomous happen. And I think the miles of data collected are now north of 30 billion Miles, 30 billion miles, just Tesla. And I believe uh, Google is 30 million miles. Uh, now, Google is probably the finest AI company in the world. I think that a lot of people agree with that. Uh, but in terms of making this, to executing on this challenge, it seems like Tesla has pulled together the right people 
with the right data, with the right vision. Just because a company is expert in AI does not mean they're going to win the spoils. It's really the applications. Uh, yeah. And, and actually, if you look across the platforms, one of the, I think, interesting byproducts of the modeling that we do is AI is um, the most equity market cap is captured by AI of our platforms in the equity space today. You can easily imagine why, right? Like uh, a lot of, we attribute a lot of the value of, of Alphabet to its AI capability, for example, and that's a, you know, more than a trillion dollar market cap company. But if you look across our technologies, kind of our expectation for rate of um, market cap accrual or incremental market cap creation is actually much more rapid in the other technology platforms, in some of these vertical applications where AI actually plays an important role, but there are other um, technologies that it's converging with to, to kind of enable these applications. And so autonomous taxis is a great example where it's not really, you know, there's a value attributed to cruise automation within GM. There's whatever the value of Tesla that's attributable to autonomous taxi expectations. There's kind of va some value in attributed to Baidu, but it's not that much. It's actually substantially less than is we think currently attributed to the electric vehicle space. But we think that part of the value chain assuming you can deliver on a robo-taxi, becomes the most valuable position to be in. Yeah, and uh, Tasha and Sam have, have done incredible work. All, all of what we're talking about now are based on the research insights of our analysts, guided by Brett, our, our fearless director of research. And Sam has also done work, this is new to Big Ideas this, this year, on automation generally, and uh, taking what we learned from how the manufacturing sector automated, it took, I believe, was it 15 years? No, 25, 25 years, 25 years. So from 1990 to 2015, for the manufacturing sector to go from uh, 20 robots per 10,000 uh, employees to, uh, I think that was 200. And our work now suggests that this is going to happen economy-wide around the world, depending on the development of the country, in just five years, the same level of automation. Again, AI plays importantly into this, as, as does battery technology, both of them foundational to, to what is going on. Yeah. And, and if you think about that, like in some ways, that sounds like, oh, my gosh, that's really quickly you know, manufacturing, which is very well suited to robotization or mechanization, took 25 years to take up kind of these systems, these automation systems. And how is the whole economy going to do the same thing? Well, for one thing, 250 robots per 10,000 employees is that could be a quite low number, right? Like there's no reason why you wouldn't have an employee who is essentially using multiple robots or tools to produce the things that the employee is producing. And what the advance in robots that's interesting to us is the combination of AI and, and more advanced and inexpensive sensors and even just like programming interfaces allows them to, to work right alongside a human. And you should also think about robots broadly in that getting a, a drone delivery, that's a robot. Potentially the fry cook in a restaurant is a robot arm. It will enable adaptive robots to, to backwards integrate with current processes in, in a much easier way, which allows the uptake rate to be faster with, with 
manufacturing, you kind of have to build a giant cage and then you have to hire specialized engineers to, to, to determine exactly how about that robot's going to move and it'll move very quickly. Kind of the, the next generation of robots is going to be something that you can, oh, it's not doing it quite right. The person that's working on the line can help it to work more effectively and it's not going to accidentally knock that person's head off because it's going to have sensors to prevent it from doing so uh, and so it allows it to be more completely integrated in processes that are already working for businesses today yeah and i know that as our listeners hear about this they say oh my goodness this is going to happen so quickly when we started the company the headline i think this was for, from oxford university a study uh, the headline of the study was 47% of all people in the United States, it was a U.S. study, are going to lose their uh, jobs to automation, artificial intelligence in the next 20 to 25 years. And they left it there, hair on fire. You know, it was it caused a, a ruckus. And we did the rest of that study, actually, Brett leading our analysts. There were 700 occupations that uh, they believed are going to be uh, mechanized. And when we did that study, the right answer and the full story was yes. And because of this, GDP in the United States in 2035 will be not 28 trillion, but 40 trillion. And our job is to find that where that $12 trillion is. New jobs, completely new jobs we cannot even imagine today. Who could have imagined the gig economy back in the early 90s? Uber drivers and so forth. The same thing's going to happen, except much more rapidly. But I'd love to get more into drones because here's a provocative way to understand what's going on and how quickly it might happen. According to Tasha's work, the cost uh, to, for a drone to take a parcel over a 10-mile area will be roughly 25 cents. Today, even if we introduced drones that were remotely piloted, again, introducing human beings into it, the cost would be, for the same thing, would be $7.80. Now that 25 cents is at scale, whereas when we really have a sky full of drones uh, delivering packages. But you can see the, the remote, the human part of it is not going down in terms of uh, wages or salaries, but uh, taking the human out of the equation. And by the way, I do believe we're going to end up in a labor shortage again. So this will be a very useful thing for us. The more repetitive jobs are going to uh, succumb to mechanization, and the more interesting jobs uh, will go to human beings who will be helped by by robots. Right, and in, in that underwriting of 25 cents per parcel delivery, there's an expectation that there's gonna be a human monitoring all of those drones that are operating autonomously. They just won't be responsible for the single one. Just like with autonomous taxis, there's still gonna be a human in the system. And, and what autonomous taxis are really going to displace is all of the amateur drivers, you and me, we're amateur drivers. And then, in fact, if we calculated the cost of driving to us personally over the course of our lives, it would drive us nuts. It's like you don't get paid for sitting in the car driving, but it's clearly economic activity. One of the things that innovation does is it takes non-market activity 
and it turns it into a market service. And so autonomous taxi platforms are, are the big labor force they're going to displace is an unpaid labor force. And I'm looking forward to watching, you know, Netflix in the backseat of an autonomous taxi someday because driving is it's boring and it's laborious. Uh, it, it's not like using your human creative potential to its maximum degree. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to say uh, Brett has two young children, and I remember around the time his uh, son was born, he was uh, thinking about we were thinking about autonomous uh, very carefully, and he, he basically said, you know what, I am so happy my son is never going to drive because we're going to look back and say that human-driven cars were weapons of mass destruction. You know, 35,000 deaths a year in the U.S., I think it's 1.25 million globally, will save a lot of lives. So a win-win there, right? Yeah, I think the age of 16 was probably the most dangerous year of my life, just (laughs) because suddenly I was given, you know, 3,000-pound missile to to pilot around. It, It seems crazy in retrospect. Yes, it does. I guess another new area that we've introduced uh, this year is orbital aerospace. And what strikes me about orbital aerospace is talk about convergences. Almost everything we've worked on, except for maybe genomics, and and we'll end on, on that, is involved in orbital aerospace. So deep learning, mobile connectivity, 3D printing, robotics, I mean, you know, the gamut. Uh, So, and again, we're, we're looking, it's the same story over and over again. Why is this happening now? This has been a dream in the eye for years, right? Uh, And the reason is costs have collapsed and the technologies are ready. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the collapse in the price to loft something into the orbit into the sub $2,000 per kilogram range is notable. Even more notable is is as you are doing reusable rockets, we think you're going to get to uh, on the order of $100 a kilogram. So another 20x decline versus, you know, in 2016, you're at $14,000 a kilogram. And so then the question becomes, what are you going to do with all this capability? It's one thing is very clear. You're going to throw a lot of satellites up into space. And so if you've you know, ever been agonizingly duped into paying for uh, satellite internet while on an airplane, that experience should get better once you, once you have the satellites a lot closer to connect to. And even like I know at my house, sometimes my internet cuts out. You can imagine that some people like have a backup satellite internet that actually works and is quick. So that in the case of Kathy, her video just cut out because she doesn't have satellite internet. And, and that's going to be possible be, because of the, the declining cost for orbital aerospace. Yeah. And I, I think people are surprised to hear us talk about 3D printing in the context of orbital aerospace, but it's applicable widely to aerospace. Right now, the killer app for 3D printing is aerospace. You've got Boeing and Airbus and others in such trouble. And during times of trouble, when businesses fear for their survival, they're willing to change the way they're doing things. And so the, the, the costs associated with printing some of the parts on airplanes, even within engine engines, the, the costs are 
75 to 90% cheaper. And form factors are smaller, weight is lighter, and so forth. So uh, 3D printing, we believe, is starting to emerge from, uh, it's been a very long valley of despair. Valley of despair usually happens after there's been a hype cycle, as there was with 3D printing, uh, we were all going to have a 3D printer on on our desks, what I don't know for, maybe jewelry or parts, whatever. That was not going to happen. The killer apps are, right today are medical, so hearing aids, and aerospace. And space itself, maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, any performance critical application where you have like a low volume part, that's where it makes sense. We have an, an example in the deck where... I believe it's Airbus uh, reduced the part count for a single, um, it's called a satellite bus from 125 parts to one part, which is stiffer and lighter. And so you can imagine the kind of manufacturing efficiencies you even get out of that. If, if I can just print one, I don't have to do deal with error tolerance between all the parts I'm putting together. Uh, and, uh, and our belief is that particularly as the number of aerospace, both orbital and suborbital, so think of drones and parcel drones, as the number uh, enabled by energy storage, by lithium ion batteries, as the number of form factors proliferate, you're actually going to see more in-use parts appear in these devices that are 3D printed. And that's where the market gets really interesting and large. Right now, 3D printing is mostly in prototyping and kind of the tooling that you use to manufacture things at volume. Well, if you have all kinds of custom aircraft, basically, uh, that are all very weight sensitive, then you're going to end up with a lot more 3D printed parts in those aircraft. And so and, and our view is that you basically increase the size of the addressable market by more than an order of magnitude as you get into that in-use parts space. Yeah, and I guess uh, maybe we'll end on genomics. And uh, you'll notice if you read our Big Ideas 2021 that genomics is indeed at the back of the bus. And our genomics analysts were wondering, well, why is that? Well, there was a certain progression that marketing thought was um, important, starting with deep learning. But ending with genomics, probably one of the most provocative applications, as, as Brett mentioned a little earlier, is of AI is to the genomic space. And there are breakthroughs, for example, long read sequencing that are taking place. Again, it's all about cost coming down to a low enough level and the technology being ready. Well, long read sequencing is getting ready for prime time. It's more accurate, more reliable than short read sequencing, which has been the, the traditional sequencing. We believe that the costs are coming down fast enough now I believe this is a 28% for every cumulative doubling in the number of human genomes uh, sequences read with long read that we believe the next during the next five years, the compound annual rate of growth in the long read sequencing space is going to be 82% per year. Uh, so think about that. Compact, think about that. 82% year after year. I mean, that, that, that space is going to get very big in a very short period of time, much like electric vehicles, which are also ironically, not ironically, coincidentally, going to, we believe, show an 82% compound annual rate of growth over the next five years. So, so we're, we're moving into very big numbers in a, in a much shorter period of time 
than has happened historically. And I, and before we we end or Brett ends on this topic, I think that the reason many investors are having trouble visualizing how quickly things are going to happen here, how, how, how quickly the changes are going to take place, is because we've never been in this uh, kind of period before. You have to go back to the early 1900s to, three, to see three platforms evolving at the same time, technologically enabled platforms, telephone, electricity, and automobile. Those three went into exponential growth trajectories at the t- same time. Today, five platforms 14 underlying uh, technologies or supporting technologies converging, converging. You know, there are going to be explosive changes and uh, we're probably as excited. We we love all of our children, but we're, you know, the results we're going to see coming out of the genomic revolution, we're, we're going to see cures to disease. We're already seeing it, but maybe Brett, why don't you take it from there? Yeah, I think one of the things you mentioned it, with these cost declines, what's interesting is like some cost price points matter more than others in terms of the demand that you unveil, right? And and so it's actually the cost to sequence a genome has been declining, you know, dramatically since the first human genome project in 2003. And, and the cost to long read sequence a genome where you can understand more of the structural variants. So not just is a letter wrong in the genome, but is is a part of it inverted are there a number of repeats in a row? And those structural variants are actually really important in some critical situations like cancer. Being able to get that information, it can simply be too expensive for a while for anybody to do it in a scalable way. And then you hit a critical cost threshold and suddenly it makes sense within the economic decision-making processes of all of the purchasers of that technology. And so the the same is true, we believe, with... Um, liquid biopsy, the idea that you'll be able to take a a blood test and detect whether or not you have early stage cancer. Well, in 2015, with our understanding of the, basically the genome and and the information that was being sloughed off into the blood by cancers, it would have cost roughly $30,000 to try to detect cancer from a blood draw. And we believe that's going to be, I think it's $250 by, by 2025. Right. And so between $30,000 and $250, $30,000 to $10,000 actually doesn't matter because it's still way too expensive for it to make sense for an individual patient to be tested on that basis because you're going to catch so few cancers that uh, the economics don't work. But as you cross the $1,000 price threshold, suddenly the whole market gets unlocked. And it's it's a market that we believe is going to be worth more than $100 billion a year in spend because you're going to be able to dramatically reduce cancer mortality. So then to electric vehicles, the same is true. It, an electric vehicle um, that costs $200,000 doesn't make sense and never would have made sense to drive volume scaling of the pricing. But once Tesla delivered the Model S price point and got people to buy, that drove battery production that in, and started that flywheel moving such that in our view, you're going to cross all of the price segment price points in, in the whole automotive space, where by 2025, an electric vehicle will be cheaper, uh, substantially cheaper than like a Toyota Camry, the median car sold in the US. A 350 mile 
electric vehicle will be more performative, cost you less money over time and cost you less money out of pocket. And so that's an important price threshold to cross and the whole market will invert on that basis. And on that price point, uh, already it's that the total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle is lower than that for a like-for-like gas-powered vehicle. That's already true. We're talking about the sticker price now. So that by, I think in five years, we believe that a Toyota Camry will still cost somewhere in the twenty-five dollars to $26,000 range. By that time, uh, a like-for-like electric vehicle will be down to $18,000. No-brainer. No-brainer. Right. It would be right. a huge surprise if people decided to stick with the whole technology. So if you stack all of these opportunities up, and this goes back to your original point, Kathy, if you, if you look at all the 14 technologies and the modeling we've done, on those 14 technologies and the attributable market cap. Right now, we think there's roughly $14 trillion in attributable public equity market cap to those technologies. By 2030, we think there's going to be on the order of $75 trillion in attributable market cap. Uh, that's roughly the size of the total global equity market today. So, so that gives you a sense of like how much value creation we think is going to happen in the technology platforms that we're focused on. And by the way, we could be wrong, and it's not going to be a straight line from here to there. But that's how much value creation we think there's going to be. And it could result in a lot of destruction to the rest of the kind of public equity space along the way. Yes. And uh, we would be remiss if we did not uh, talk about one more topic, because today, actually, and I realize this will be a bit dated when anyone's hearing it, but uh, the market cap or the equivalent of market cap for Bitcoin uh, just crossed one trillion dollars. And uh, Yasin Almandra has written a number of white papers, more are on their way. And, uh, you know, he points out that every use case is just additive to Bitcoin. But just think about this. One trillion dollars is, you know, half of what Apple's worth. And yet this is a global digital monetary ecosystem. Uh, and Bitcoin is the reserve currency of that ecosystem, we believe. Uh, that is a very big idea. And so you'll see two sections in Big Ideas about Bitcoin as well. So with that, uh, Brett, do you want to close this out? Sure. Thanks, Kathy. I, as always, enjoyed the conversation. I'll probably talk to you in another half hour or so about yes. these exact same topics. <laughs> this is, yeah. this is no, like a taste of Kathy in my life, like research meetings, basically this over and over and over again. <laughs> But every one of them is fun. We're trying Indeed. to we're trying to figure out the way the world's going to work, putting the pieces of the puzzle puzzles together, especially especially with all of these convergences going on, creating three D puzzles. So it's uh, it's actually quite fun. I agree, a hundred percent. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us, Kathy, and thank you, listeners, for joining us uh, to FYI, the Four Year Innovation Podcast. We will talk to you soon. And thank you, Brett, for guiding us through this exciting uh, time of research. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. 
Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. 